A quick warning before we begin. Today's episode discusses abortion and the political and religious debates around it. This topic may be difficult for some. Welcome to our podcast, A Step Toward Justice. I am Dr. Justina Licata, and I'm a historian and professor. My research and teaching focus on late 20th century U.S. social policies, feminism, and reproductive justice. And I'm Isabel Stevens, a history and theater major. We are researching, writing, and recording this podcast at Randolph College in Lynchburg, Virginia, as part of the summer research program. In this six-episode series, we will be exploring the topic of reproductive justice and issues relating to it, such as abortion, eugenics, scientific and medical racism, and the LGBTQ plus community and the disability community. Please make sure to tune in every Wednesday, as new episodes will be available on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Hello everyone, Justina here. I will be leading today's episode, which features a conversation with scholar Dr. Rebecca Todd Peters about her book, Trust Women, A Progressive Christian Argument for Reproductive Justice. Before we jump into the discussion, I wanted to talk a bit about how I came upon this book and the significant arguments Dr. Peters asserts. In the next episode, I will be examining the history and role of clinic escorting in the fight for abortion access. Clinic escorts are volunteers who assist patients as they maneuver around anti-abortion protesters as they enter clinics. I've been clinic escorting for about three years, and during this time I've had several interactions with anti-abortion Christians. Because I'm not a religious person, I began to notice that these experiences tainted my perception of Christians. Therefore, in an effort to learn more about Christian thought in relation to the controversial abortion debate, I took to Google, and I was delighted to come across Dr. Peters' scholarship. Dr. Rebecca Todd Peters is a professor of religious studies and Christian ethics at Elon University in North Carolina. She is also an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church and a feminist Christian social ethicist. Dr. Peters is a mother of two, and she's had two abortions, both of which she discusses in her book. Her activism centers on globalization, economic, environmental, and reproductive justice. Her book, Trust Women, challenges the traditionalist Christian understanding of the abortion debate. The Christian conservative pro-life debate is defined by three core ideas. One, all pregnancies are gifts from God. Two, prenates are full human beings from the moment of conception. And three, women are morally obligated to carry a prenate from conception to birth. Peters asserts that these interpretations are based in misogynistic and patriarchal Christian traditions and theology. In her analysis of the moral discussions around abortion today, Peters argues Traditional Christians' narrow views of the abortion debate compel individuals terminating a pregnancy to justify their need for an abortion. Peters calls this the justification framework and demonstrates that only four justifications are deemed acceptable. They are the health of a prenate, the mother's life, rape, or incest. Further, she argues that the justification framework forces all abortion patients into one of two categories, the tragic or the damned. Because
because about 75% of abortions terminate an unwanted and unplanned pregnancy, the vast majority of abortion patients are classified as the damned, and consequently, they're shamed for this decision. To move away from the morally right or morally wrong debate, Peters urges readers to apply the reproductive justice framework. In doing so, she argues the abortion question will center the patient's experiences and needs while also treating the prenate as a potential human rather than a full human being. Both of these changes will complicate the morality of abortion. Instead of focusing on the prenate's personhood, the question would consider the needs of the pregnant person, the prenate, and their community. To end her book, Peters confirms that abortion can be a morally good decision, not just for the pregnant person or the prenate, but also for society at large. And she celebrates the individuals who have made this difficult decision. We began our conversation with Dr. Peters by asking her how she came to this research and her introduction to reproductive justice. I have been working on issues related to abortion and reproductive health rights and justice for 30 years. I began working or sort of getting introduced to the issue when I first worked for the National Presbyterian Church in the early 90s. And um, when I was there, they, the, the church, the PCUSA, had a national task force on abortion and problem pregnancies. And I was staff in an office that was an advocacy office. It was called Justice for Women in a larger unit called the Women's Ministry Unit. So the, the whole unit was working on uh, w- women's issues. And part of what we were doing was just sort of monitoring that task force, was going to the meetings, was going to the the hearings for that group, serving as a resource for them as part of the national staff. And so I ended up going to a lot of the, several of the meetings and also then being um, just aware of what was happening with that group. And you know, I mean, in this task force was uh, theologians and biblical scholars and lay people and ministers and just people across the church who were just talking about these issues. And, you know, my interest was just really piqued at what they were doing and what was happening. And at the time in the early 90s, it was really apparent to me that what was happening at the national level in the Presbyterian Church and what I saw then happening in other mainline denominations was that there was a vocal minority group of pro-life people who were slowly pushing the denominations into more conservative pro-life kinds of positions in ways that were really sort of on the surface kind of innocuous, like getting the churches to make statements like we don't um, support the use of abortion as birth control, right? So like on its face, it's got this sort of fake neutral kind of veneer to it. But abortion is a form of birth control, right? I mean, you know, ultimately it is controlling women's birth. And to make a statement like that is to imply that there's something wrong with abortion and undercut the stance that the church had had for many years as a pro-choice organization, right? Not a pro-abortion organization, but a pro-choice organization, really recognizing from that national church perspective that we trust women to make decisions, women with their partners and their families to make decisions about 
having children or not having children. You know, when I was in my early 20s, I was just out of college and I was just really upset by the way these processes were working and the way that pro-life groups were organizing in the church to move the national church um, to this conservative place. And so, you know, from there I went on to seminary and then into a PhD program and that had really piqued my interest in this topic, uh, piqued my interest into sort of the deeper movements of sort of right-wing conservative Christians and how they were working in politics and in churches and really trying to reshape culture and politics uh, in relation to their own theological agenda. And as I was in my PhD program, I I worked some, um, you know, I studied with Beverly Harrison, who had written sort of the book on, you know, a pro-choice Christian perspective in 1983. And so some of my work, you know, I did with her in doctoral work on on those issues. And, you know, just sort of continued an interest in it, even though it wasn't my major focus in my work as a scholar until about 10 years ago. And then, you know, it was, you know, after the, the, what was it, the 2010 election that things really shifted. And we started having Republican state houses across the country that, that really began the newest wave of anti-choice legislation. And that I had lots of colleagues who were coming to me saying, you have to write on this. You have, you need to write a book. You need to do something. And I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) You know, in a lot of ways, I was in a good position to do that because I I had been working on the issue, you know, but I didn't really have anything particular. You know, usually when I'm, I'm working on a project, there's something I want to say or something I want to research or something I want to do. I have sort of an idea of what the project is. And and this, I just got a sabbatical and I said, I need to figure out what needs to be said from a Christian perspective, from the perspective of a Christian ethicist in the midst of this landscape that has changed dramatically from 1983 when Bev wrote her book. And so I just spent a whole lot of time reading, not just scholarship, but really what was going on in the culture? How were people arguing? What was happening in state houses? And trying to figure out sort of what's the problem here? Um, Again, as a social ethicist, the first task of social ethics is social analysis. So I spent just six or eight months just doing social analysis, trying to figure out what was going on. And that was when I sort of had this epiphany around the justification framework was, you know, not only were we requiring women to justify their abortions, but what was the implication of that? And what was the role of religion and particularly Christianity in framing a culture where we require women to justify their decisions? And and that was really the genesis of the project. That was a super long answer to your question. <laughs> but, you know, that's what really brought me into thinking about how to frame this book. And it was in that work that I really was introduced to reproductive justice. It was not something that I had been really aware of or the origins of or the work of. You know, I had done a couple of uh, sort of leadership, fellowship kinds of things with um, a couple of organizations, probably right at the beginning of that, like in the early 2010s. And, and, and that was where I first really heard about reproductive justice. We met Loretta Ross in that. Um, and that was really the early genesis of, of this research. As a follow-up to that question, we asked Dr. Peters why she believed 
reproductive justice was a superior framework for approaching this topic. The whole theoretical framework of reproductive justice as I was working through what do we need to replace justification with, the way that they are reframing abortion within a larger conversation seemed like exactly what we needed to do. Like, you know, there's so much emphasis on abortion when really that's then taking up all the space and taking up all the time and the money and the energy of people when there's really so many other things that we need to be addressing from a social perspective around reproduction and support for women and their partners and their families and their children. And we need to recast the way we think and talk about reproduction. And and it made an enormous amount of sense, the work that was coming out of the reproductive justice frame. Next, we moved on to a question about audience. I was really curious to hear about who Dr. Peters hoped would pick up and read this book and what they would take away from it. I have primary and secondary audiences that I imagine, you know, and part of this comes from being a teacher, you know, and when I teach, I try to help students identify who's the primary audience here. And then, you know, I always ask the question, well, can other people who are not part of the primary audience learn from what is here? And I I think almost always the answer is yes, you know, but, but having to think about what does, what does that mean? And what does that look like? And how does that then relate when you're writing a book as you're thinking about audience? I think if you try to have too many audiences, then you don't really have an argument anymore. So I would say the primary argument really is Christians and people who, you know, are part of that faith tradition or have been influenced by that faith tradition. We had some minor technical difficulties here, but what Dr. Peters was saying was that her main primary audience was people who were either part of that faith tradition or influenced by that faith tradition. All right, let's get back to what she was saying. Or or people who are influenced by that Christian framework, you know, in in whatever way people define that. So it's a, a message that is meant to say there is in our culture today, a predominant understanding that Christianity is pro-life, which is actually not true. That, that, that That's not true currently, nor is it true historically. And, and so there's, there's this desire to correct that misunderstanding and to help people recognize and frame and think about new ways of asking ethical questions related to unwanted or unexpected or problem pregnancies. And to so in that sense, there's this sense of helping people who are influenced by Christian traditions to recognize and understand alternative ways of framing the questions that are dominant in our culture right now. And again, this is an, I think one thing people don't, people who aren't part of this movement don't really recognize and understand is that this pro-life framing is very recent framing. Um, It's even from, you know, since the 1980s, it didn't come with Roe v. Wade. It came much later. And it's something that has been really developed over the last several decades through very intentional, organized, 
grassroots movement of pro-life people who have propagated this idea and this belief system and and this theology and presented it as if it were, you know, the way that Christians think about these issues. And so, you know, primarily, my primary audience would be to those people who are part of that belief system to say there's an alternative way of thinking about this here, a counter narrative, you know, but then secondarily, I think it's really important for people who are not Christian or who are, right, you know, secular or other religious traditions to not just dismiss what's happening with Christians and abortion to say, oh, that's those crazy people over there that I'm not a part of. Because I think that it's really important for all of us to recognize the ways in which our politics, our culture, our society is influenced by religious beliefs in ways that we don't always recognize or understand. I mean, part of that is, you know, my interest historically in the ways in which this country was shaped by Protestantism in the very founding. But I think people may be sort of more readily able to understand and see that. And historically, people have had more recognition of that. But in conversations around things like abortion, or even contraception, I don't think people recognize the ways in which minority Christian conservative religious belief systems have shaped the have shaped the the conversation in the country. And I think if people were really to understand that at a deeper level, people would be more upset about that and more concerned about the ways in which our morality as a country and politically is being shaped by a very small minority group of, of Christians. The next question, which discusses misogyny and misogyny in theology, was written and asked by my co-host, Isabel. So in your fourth chapter, uh, called Misogyny is Exhausting, uh, you (laughs) you discuss that while the history of Christian traditions and theology is misogynistic and patriarchal, religion is not inherently misogynistic and patriarchal. We found this thought to be very interesting. Would you mind elaborating on your argument? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is my favorite chapter title. And it came after, you know, I had sort of sequestered myself to work through all the literature that I knew I needed to deal with in the history portion of this argument, you know, and just reading the endless patriarchs of the church writing about women was so exhausting. And, you know, and I was just like, at the end of it, I was just exhausted. And that's when I named this chapter, you know. And that's part of the task of feminist theologians and feminist Christian ethicists is recognizing that part of the history of the tradition has been, well, you know, the majority of the tradition has really been oriented against women in very misogynist and patriarchal ways. So not just about power and authority and who has access to, you know, being ordained or being a priest or, or serving, you know, in, in official capacities, but even having the roles that are assigned to women be so controlled and confined and constrained and oriented around capacities related to birthing and and raising children, right? Or, or or even just our sexuality, right? So it's like virgin whore or, you know, sort of Mary or, uh, you know, virgin Mary or, or, or prostitute harlot. It's, it's, it's these dichotomies that have proliferated throughout the tradition 
you know, feminist theologians argue it's because men were in positions of authority and positions of power and positions of scholarship that their voices and interpretations of the tradition predominated and then it just perpetuated those systems. And so, you know, one of the things that was just this wonderful awakening for me in graduate school was finding feminist biblical scholars and feminist theologians and feminist ethicists who went back in and looked for different ways of interpreting the tradition and different ways of thinking about these stories and different ways of imagining uh, or understanding even, not just imagining, but different ways of understanding women's power and agency in patriarchal worlds. So there are people who also leave the tradition because of the patriarchy and misogyny. And part of my perspective is, where are you going? You know, I mean, where in the world are you going where you are not going to be part of a history that is patriarchal and misogynist? I mean, it's endemic in culture and history. And so for me, as someone who is deeply committed to social justice and the ways in which my tradition taught me to understand humanity, community, people, relationship, how we should structure life, right? All of these sorts of things about how I understand the world should be come from my religious training and tradition and history. Now I've had to relearn a lot of that and reteach myself new ways of thinking about and imagining myself and my children and my family in that narrative and story. But I think that, you know, that's also part of the fun because the roots are there and the stories are there. And But that's also the history of women in the world. And so how do we take those stories that are in our sacred tradition and think about what they mean and how to think through what meaning they can have for us today. You know, I don't want to go into those tropes of, you know, everything happens for a reason, which I think is like the worst theology ever. What everything happens for a reason is very different from saying, I can make meaning out of anything that happens to me, right? So that I can look to my faith to help me make meaning in new ways of good and bad things that happen in my life, that theology is meant to help us bring meaning out of our existence. And so I have chosen to stay in that tradition to try to help find new meaning from a feminist perspective that is more life-giving and liberating than what is there in the history. For our last question, Isabel and I were curious about how does change happen and how can people contribute to that change? I often like to try to help students think about how social change happens by using cases, right? So if you think about the elimination of the Jim Crow laws, that was a legal move that didn't change anybody's attitude, you know, but it was significant. We had to have that legal infrastructure, not necessarily before or instead of, but that, ha- that just had to happen, right? I would parallel that with abortion. Abortion has to be legal or women will die. And we know that. We, we know that historically. We can, that is not, that's not supposition. Changing or, or solidifying the law will not touch the attitudes of people out there. And so I think we have to do two things simultaneously whenever we talk about social change. We always have to look at what are the legal barriers and 
hardships that are created through laws and public policies? And what are our social attitudes that are contributing to our acceptance or rejection of those legal norms? Because law always reflects society. And so they go hand in hand. You can't do one without the other. Oftentimes, I think you can make moves forward more quickly when you're working in concert with the law. You know, Brown v. Board of Education. I mean, there's so many we could, even Roe v. Wade. I mean, there's so many we can look to to say that was essential for movement forward. Now, we always have sort of the flow of culture and society and backlash. So right now we have all this backlash against voting rights laws. You know, in in 68, we thought we fixed that. (laughs) And now, you know, there's backlash. And so I don't think whatever the Supreme Court does now or in the future is going to stop this. I think that, that the idea around liminality, birth and death, not just at the beginning of life, but at the end of life, People in Western cultures are uncomfortable with death. The uncertainty around the beginning of life, the end of life is fraught with emotion. It's fraught with unknown. Um, You know, even people who say sort of, this is what I believe based on my religion about, you know, insolment or death, you know, we don't know that, right? Those are just things that people believe. (laughs) And so... I think there's always going to be this unsettledness for some people at least. So I don't expect the conversation to go away. I do think we need to have a culture shift. And I think that the way that that culture shift, or at least one way that it could happen, would be for more people who are silent, but who don't share the pro-life perspective to be more vocal and active in a reproductive justice conversation. When people start talking about abortion, say, look, I don't want to talk about abortion or I don't want to only talk about that. I want to talk about, you know, the children that are being born who don't have, you know, their mothers don't have enough money to to feed them or to uh, have housing in a country that doesn't have enough affordable housing units. And so these children are being brought up in substandard housing and that's a public health crisis. So I want to help empower people to pivot and to reframe and to say, okay, I don't think abortion is wrong, but I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about these other things. So it's not a it's not a pivoting to avoid talking about abortion, but it's a pivoting to say that is such a small piece of what we need to be talking about. But unless and until large groups of legislators who I think are influenced by their local congregations and by, particularly in the South where a lot of these laws are the most uh, regressive, I think it needs to be pastors and people in churches and congregations, you know, and particularly Christians. It's Christians who are the problem here, who need to be rethinking and reframing how we talk about this issue, how we talk about these issues. So I think it's got to be that kind of culture shift where we, and we here would be progressive Christians or Christians who are pro-choice, that majority of Christians who don't want abortion to be made illegal, have to really have conversations and, and speak up and say, there's another way of thinking and talking about this. And if we don't make this shift, we're going to continue to harm women and families, and particularly the women who are going to be harmed by this legislation are poor women, 
young women and women of color, the most, the people who are most vulnerable right now in these spaces. And and, and, and unless and until those Christian churches who talk about, you know, wanting to, to speak up for the vulnerable, understand that the vulnerable are in their midst living right now. And they are often pregnant women who are young and economically unstable and marginalized and disproportionately women of color, then then we, we won't be able to change the larger cultural narrative. I think Dr. Peter's final point is crucial to the fight for reproductive justice. And the use of the pivot must also be applied in white feminist spaces. For decades, the white-led reproductive rights movement centered their attention on legal abortions. Although the right to an abortion is essential to reproductive freedom, poor communities and communities of color are subject to a vast array of reproductive oppressions. Therefore, we must adopt the reproductive justice framework and create feminist platforms that fight for the right to not have a child, the right to have a child, and the right to raise a child in a safe and healthy environment. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Step Towards Justice. Before I close, I would like to thank Dr. Rebecca Todd Peters for taking the time to discuss her incredible book with my co-host Isabel Stevens and myself. If you are interested in learning more, I would encourage you to read her book, Trust Women, A Progressive Christian Argument for Reproductive Justice, in its entirety. If you would like to see images and resources related to this episode, check out our Instagram account at A Step Towards Justice Podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and come back to hear our next episode, which will ask the question, how can we reframe clinic escorting in a reproductive justice context?